The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hi, this is just a friendly reminder to make sure that you are registered to vote for the upcoming elections this November. Please text the word voter to 26797 to check your registration. You will also receive reminders for all local, state, and federal elections and your polling locations. And don't forget to follow I Am a Voter for more civic engagement opportunities. That's voter to 26797. Hi, this is Deborah Messing. I'm an actress and social justice advocate. I am Mandana Dayani, creator and co-founder of the nonpartisan movement, I Am A Voter. So Mandana and I are best friends and activism is a huge part of our lives and who we are. We're constantly inspired by the incredible work people are doing every day all over the world. And then one day we realized something. Most of these people had no intention of becoming heroes. They're just accidental activists who knew something was not okay and chose to do something about it. In this podcast, we share the journeys of 20 of these dissenters who blew us away. Based on Ruth Bader Ginsburg's iconic I dissent slogan, a dissenter is someone who stood up to an injustice or challenged the status quo, someone who fought to build a better way. This week, we speak with the incredible Carol Codwalder, a world-renowned investigative journalist who rose to international prominence in 2018 when she exposed the Facebook Cambridge Analytica data scandal and the right-wing fake news ecosystem. The investigation resulted in Mark Zuckerberg being called before Congress and Facebook losing more than $100 billion from its share price. She has also uncovered multiple crimes committed during the European referendum and evidence of Russian interference in Brexit. She was the subject of the mind-blowing Netflix documentary, The Great Hack, and has won a Polk Award and the Orwell Prize for Political Journalism, and was named a Pulitzer Prize finalist for national reporting in 2019. Carol is a features writer for The Observer and The Guardian in the United Kingdom and a member for all the citizens and possibly one of the smartest women we have ever spoken with. In 2019, Carol gave a 15-minute TED Talk titled, Facebook's role in Brexit and the threat to democracy, which she delivered directly to the people she described as the gods of Silicon Valley. Mark Zuckerberg, Sheryl Sandberg, Larry Page, Sergey Brin, and Jack Dorsey. The founders of Google and Facebook were sponsors of the event, and the co-founder of Twitter was speaking at it. She said, quote, as things stood, I didn't think it was possible to have free and fair elections ever again. That liberal democracy was broken, and they had broken it. Carol is on a mission to uncover and create accountability for the unchecked spread of disinformation and its consequences on elections around the world. Disinformation is false information or propaganda that's deliberately created to harm a person, social group, organization, or country disinformation and election interference is real. It is happening around the world. Just today, Kenya's Supreme Court said that it had nullified the August 8th presidential campaign because its voting may have been hacked. The courage she has is just so remarkable. And truly, she was one of the first people we thought of when the idea of the dissenters came together. And now it is our greatest honor to introduce you to the amazing dissenter, Carol Codwallader the dismantler of disinformation. Oh my God! 
Carol. <laughs> you are such a hero. We have been dying. We have been dying. I I, it's so that. it's so thrilling to talk to you. You are oh. you are a global hero. And I don't um, say that. That's just embarrassing and not true. And the <laughs> and we just can't really believe that you agreed that. to do this with us. So. I know, I know. So before you change your mind, we want to we want to dive. Right <laughs> we'll in. dive in. That's right. <laughs> Why don't we start just introducing you to some of our our listeners? When did you start writing about tech? Well, I actually started maybe more than a decade ago. Actually, I've never been a technology reporter, and I've always been a kind of general feature writer. But I went to a TED conference back in about, I think it was 2005. And it was that, you know, it was when we were all very tech utopian and tech was going to save the world. And it was just going to be amazing. Yeah. And we were going to, like, all of us were going to like be online and we were going to discover the cure for cancer together. That's and right. it was like that kind of <laughs> utopian moment. And I was like, wow, this is amazing. And I got really interested in it after that. And I started writing about it. Did you always know you wanted to be a journalist? I I think from a very young age, I always I was very interested in being a writer of some description. So a writer, a reporter, a journalist, a novelist, a whatever. So I, I've always had it that I do like trying to express myself through words, even though obviously, as any writer will tell you, whilst you're doing it, it is hell. Nobody actually <laughs> enjoys the process of writing. <laughs> Having written is always great. We all love that. So. So we were talking on our drive-in together today about your experience, you know, sitting at home and going into Google and beginning to type in a few words and how that journey all started for you. That literally is how it all started. I mean, it's sort of, it is crazy. You know, it was about, I think it was one or two weeks after Trump had been elected. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it was that dark and cold November. Certainly it was in Britain. and. It was just that sort of profoundly disturbing feeling of what is this world we're now living in. Yeah. And I just started, I'd written this sort of short opinion piece before the election about tech disrupting politics. Mm -hmm. And because, you know, there was a sort of series of things going on. So, and I was like, oh, somebody must have written about this before. And then I sort of Googled it and I was like, hmm, that's interesting. Nobody has. And, and so it was after that, my editor had said, after the election, we started, you know, these first reports about fake news started to come out. And so my editor was like, do a long feature about fake news. And at that moment, the focus was on Facebook. And Mark Zuckerberg had just said this thing about, you know, how ridiculous it was to suggest that Facebook had played any role in the election. Mm -hmm. And... I just got it's such a sort of like ridiculous story about how I started looking at Google. And it was because Google had my age wrong. And I was like, <laughs> well, well, that won't stand. <laughs> exactly. How dare it? How dare I mean, get Google? A, get a woman's age wrong. Like make me older <laughs> than I actually already was. Unacceptable. I was like, old enough. And this friend had said to me, this friend said to me, it was like, oh, I didn't know that you're 50. And I was like, I'm not 50, how dare you? <laughs> and then he said, Google says you're 50. And I was like, what does Google know? Anyway, and then I looked, it was like, it was like there's this, there was this box by the side of my name. And it said, you know, born in 1966, I think it was. 
And I was like, that's such an outrageous lie. But also, where's it getting it from? It's from nowhere on the internet. And, um, and then I was like, well, there's nowhere on the internet that it says that I'm that age. And I was like, oh, okay, it's machine learning. It's deduced this from somewhere. Huh. And then I got, and then I was like, oh, that's really interesting. And, and then I started just testing out words. And it was literally one of the first things that I put in was Jews. And then- You had two of them here. You know, right here. <laughs> <laughs> and I just made the, you know, we make it into a question on Google. I put our Jews and I got the suggestion, are Jews evil? You know, it's like it gives you yes, five yeah. drop down suggestions. Yes. And I was like, what? And, you know, and then you, I kind of, I don't think you even had to press the return bar to get the whole page of results. And every single one was these weird sites you've never heard of. And they all said, it's all, when I clicked on them, it was all, yes, Jews are really evil. And I was just like, this is crazy. And then at the bottom of the page, it was, what do you want to search for next? And the suggestion was, did the Holocaust happen? Oh that was God. his next suggestion. Oh, my God. So I clicked on that one. And the very top result was Stormfront, which is a totally Nazi website. Yeah. And, and every single result was like, no, actually, the Holocaust never happened. It's a total myth. Oh, my Six God. million Jews did not die. This is the Holocaust lie. And then the next things to search for, do you want to search for the Holocaust is a lie? The Holocaust is a hoax. And I was just, you know, in that you just, you have that sort of moment of like total confusion. Like, what am I looking at? Is this something wrong with my computer? Right. And then I started trying different search terms. And, and Google has this thing when it's really, really confident of the answer. It puts the answer in a box. Uh-huh. Yes. And... And so I put women in and I got, I put, are women evil? And so Google had 100% certainty that the answer was, yes, <gasps> women are evil because, and this was the quote, because every woman has a little bit of prostitute inside her. Oh, oh my, my God. God. <laughs> oh my God. Are you kidding? It's like, it's a dark November night, okay? And I mean, I was just genuinely really freaked out by it. In the morning, I was sort of like emailing my editor and saying, I've got this crazy story, you know, and I don't know what it is. And then my real stroke of luck was the next day that I found this academic called Jonathan Albright, who was one of the first people to start looking at fake news. And... He had got a list. There'd been a list published of like, I think it was 200 uh, fake news sites. And he had mapped all of the links going in and out of them together to create this sort of network map. And when I rang him, he'd only just discovered this. And he, I was like, this is an entire network. This is the internet, which has been taken over. You can see it's literally strangling like the mainstream sources of news and information but it is like it's an information war. And oh this thing is like a cancer. You can sort of see it taking over the internet. And so that was a good conversation. <laughs> Me and Jonathan were sort of oh, like... Oh, my God. We were both... I was freaked out. He was freaked out. And then like at the end of the conversation, we were just like, oh, my God, what has happened to the world? This is chilling. And was it clear at that point what the agenda was, that this was just a right-wing attempt to control the narrative? Or did you guys know who's the mastermind behind any of this or no idea? 
So what's kind of amazing about this is that this was the starting point for everything. And, you know, I've been going now for more than three years trying to pursue this. And Google's been pretty lucky in terms of the heat has been mostly on On Facebook Facebook still. But you go back to that and the way that they acted around that story was appalling. It was this total denial that there was a problem. They then started ringing my editor, ringing my editor on a daily basis. Because I, my, my thing about it was the thing which is, it was a sort of key thing for me was that because I wrote this first story and it went hugely viral and everybody was like, oh my God, this is crazy, this is mad. And then like nothing happened. You know, Google, they didn't, they were still refused to make a statement. They didn't change yeah. it. You were still getting those results. Oh my God. And I was a bit, I was a bit sort of like, wait, well, I just... You know, normally I would just move on to the next story. And I was just sort of like, no, you know, this result of like the Holocaust did not happen. This cannot stay on the Internet. Of course. You know, somebody has to take responsibility for this. But what was so sort of fascinating is I don't think Google knew what was going on. And then they had to do an entire algorithmic change. And then they eventually got rid of those results. But it was it was. It's sort of weird, I think. And that's one of the thing, the interesting things I just don't think's really come out yet. So if, if it's machine learning, does that mean that there was such a, a plethora of people typing in Jews are evil or the Holocaust didn't happen, that that became the number one answer? Or some automated version of that, or some way that these sites, by linking together tricked the algorithm or something that a hostile foreign power was doing. We don't know. I mean, it's search engine optimization, right? I mean, we do this for our companies all the time. You have a new mascara, you want it to be the first one that you populate. And so you flood the internet with articles about your mascara. So when someone types it, yours populates above Maybelline. But I mean, that is a concerted effort that every brand on the internet uses now. But imagine doing that at a global scale with like really big topics like women. Yeah, no, that's it. Oh my God. So what led to the second article about Cambridge Analytica? How did you discover their role in any of this? So what was sort of funny is I was very wrapped up with Google and sort of like, you know, I, I was doing a story a week in because I was like, no, they can't get away with this. They cannot get away with this. We have to keep doing stuff. And they were starting to hate me more and more. And so they got really, really cross. And then they like threatened me with legal action. But in the middle of it, I started getting these batshit mad letters from Cambridge Analytica because there'd been a single reference to them, I think, in the first article. And I sort of said, you know, they worked. I hadn't heard of them. Jonathan told me about them. And You know, he sort of said, well, you know, the thing is about it is that, you know, there are these companies like Cambridge Analytica and they can use these fake news sites, for example, to if you visit one, they can then you can pick up a cookie and then that will follow you around the Internet. And so a company like Cambridge Analytica could be like gathering all of this information about your online behavior and then they could learn from that and then micro target you with sort of propaganda, which is more likely to engage you because they know about you. They know what you've been reading and what you've been thinking. So I just put this mention in about them. And I said that they worked for the Trump campaign and they worked in Brexit. 
And I started mm-hmm. getting these letters from Cambridge Analytica saying, this is totally untrue. We never worked in Brexit. Please delete this from your article. And so, you know, we have a reader's editor. We correct things. And he was like, Carol, can you sort this out? And I was like, but like, here's the article where they said they worked in the Leave campaign. Their CEO <laughs> said that. And here's the Leave campaign's website where they say they hired Cambridge Analytica. And they were like, yes, that's all very well, but we did no work in Brexit. Huh. So I was like, what is going on? So eventually, my the editor at The Observer, he wrote to this guy from the Leave campaign, and he said, did you employ Cambridge Analytica? What's going on here? And he said, this guy, Andy Wigmore, he's called, he said, he said, yes, they did work for us, but we didn't pay them. They were happy to help. And uh-huh. I was like, hmm, it's kind of interesting. Huh. So, so at that point, I, I sort of said, hey, Andy, would you like to go for a coffee? Be really interested <laughs> to know more about what you did with technology. So I trotted off for a, a coffee with this guy. And this was, it was about a week, two weeks after the inauguration. And they call themselves the bad boys of Brexit. Hmm. And this is Nigel Farage, essentially, and his mates. And one of his mates in particular, Aaron Banks, who, who paid for Nigel Farage's campaign. So they'd all been at the inauguration. Andy was showing me photos of them and Trump on his phone. It was like, oh, such a laugh, Carol. Oh, my it's God. Such a good time. Oh, Kellyanne, she's, such, she's so great. Wow. And then it just all kind of spilled out. He sort of told me all about Cambridge Analytica and all the amazing work they'd done and like how fabulous it was and how clever it was. And I was like, oh, kind of, you know, Robert Mercer, how he owned the company and how Steve Bannon was the vice president of the company. And he, you know, him and Nigel were friends. And so this is how they'd ended up using the same company. And, you know, in many ways, Brexit was the sort of laboratory for a lot of these techniques, which then were used in the Trump Trump campaign. campaign. That was like their, their test case. Brexit was there. Yeah, I think it's, yeah, exactly. And so anyhow, that was how I sort of did the first big article on Cambridge Analytica. And and excitingly, I I sort of, I was like, hmm, if you have a gift of services from a company, if they work for free, is that like a gift? And then I rang our electoral commission and I was like, did they, if if you take a gift as a political (laughs) campaign. You have to to report it. You have to declare. Yes. (laughs) <laughs> and they were like, yes, you'd have to declare that. And I was like, mm, and is there anywhere where that was declared? And they were like, no, there's no answer. And so I was like, oh, okay. So that is, could that actually be like illegal? And it sort of went crazy and, and it did kick off these sort of two big investigations, one of which is still ongoing, actually. What are those investigations? So, well, so the ICO one, it it's sort of, it's it's kind of really interesting and we don't yet have the final report, but this became the biggest data investigation in the world. So off the back of this, the ICO, which is our information commissioner. So this is a role which does not exist in America. Right. You have no data. We have no laws. regulations. That's right. Everywhere else in the world, it's kind of like looking at this problem. It has, I went to this conference and it was filled with data commissioners from all over the world. And it is sort of amazing that America, which is absolutely at the forefront of this and of the forefront of like how you use this information, how you weaponize it, 
there you have no protections whatsoever. But here we, so in Britain, we do have this data commissioner and they were like, well, we're very concerned about what this crossover between data and politics. So they, they started this investigation into Cambridge Analytica and then also into the sort of wider subject of data in politics. And so how did you meet um, Christopher Wiley? Where did that, how did he come into your life? So he came into my life because I was, I was essentially being gaslit. Then after the article, they then turned around and went, no, 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 we didn't use Cambridge Analytica. And I was like, even though like you literally said you did like, in the interview. <laughs> and, and then Cambridge Analytica were like, no, 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 we never worked with Facebook data. I was like, okay, I've got to give up on this. I've now already been working on this far, far too long. But I was like, it's just so annoying. They're all lying to me. So then I thought, okay, I've just got to go and find some ex-employees. And so then I started going through LinkedIn and, you know, contacting loads of people who wouldn't talk to me. And then eventually I found this guy who did talk to me. And he said, as soon as I started talking about, oh, and, you know, like, I understand Cambridge Analytica, they got all this Facebook data. And he was sort of, he immediately said, oh, well, you need to talk to this other guy, Christopher Wiley. And I was like, who's Christopher Wiley? And I hadn't seen his name anywhere. It wasn't in LinkedIn. There was nothing to connect him to Cambridge Analytica. Mm. And he said, he said, you know, he's the guy you've got to find. And then it was funny because I, when I contacted him, he was, he was sort of waiting for somebody to call. Mm. He was, he was like, oh, you're the first person. You're the first journalist who's found me. Wow. And then it sort of all started coming out, you know. What did you learn from him? You know, I was I was saying to Mandana before we started, I said, you know, my fear is that the millennials, the younger generation, they, they grew up with social media. And so they don't, they feel like, well, I don't care if you have access to my videos and my pictures, like what's the big deal? And there's not a real understanding about how catastrophic this is and insidious this is. You know, that's that's exactly right. And that's kind of, that's the sort of very much like the nub of the problem in so many ways. And part of the reason why it's not understood is that it's so dark. You know, the data, it's invisible. We don't know what they have on us. We don't know what they're doing with it. We know that there are these sort of shadow profiles of ourselves, which all these companies have built up from so many little bits of our behavior. And, and from that, they've, you know, they've got some idea about us, which is being used in weird ways. And, you know, it was the Muslim ban. Mm -hmm. was Steve Bannon was there inside the White House and he was on the Security Council and they were doing these crazy things and getting away with it. Mm -hmm. And Steve Bannon was the vice president of this company. And this company claimed to have Cambridge Analytica. You know, it boasted about the fact that it had 5,000 data points on every American. So it's, it was kind of, you know, it was one way of thinking about this was that this was a private intelligence agency you know, that had been used to elect Trump. And now that information, we knew that the company had contracts with the State Department, that it was going to get contracts with the Pentagon. And we know that this company, one of the, the things that sort of Chris taught me about the way the company operated was that in all of these countries they worked in around the world, elections were a kind of lost leader. Yeah. So 
you do the political work low cost and you get the party elected. And then when the party is in power, you mop up all the really lucrative defense contracts and terrorist profiling contracts and health contracts and anything you can. And and that is where the money is. And this is exactly the thing that we saw happening, you know. And so there was this real urgency to like why we need to get this story out, why it matters and why this data is not harmless and why this weird, weird company. I mean, you know, there's, I think people think of Cambridge Analytica, you know, as this weird data company, which did stuff with Facebook data. Right. But it was a defense contractor. You know, it worked all around the world doing really shady work for governments in places like Iran and Iraq and Afghanistan. It was using information as as warfare. And then it had taken that methodology it had allied it to this world of big data and then was using it in Western democracies and turning it essentially on the populations whose governments had paid to develop the technology. You know? Can you explain how they how he explained to you the use of information and quizzes and understanding people's fears to target the the persuadables? Because that I think blew our minds. Yes, the persuadables, the whole concept of that. And can you explain that for us? Well, I think, I mean, it's it's kind of funny because I think a lot of people didn't really take the, the story seriously for all sorts of reasons. And one of it was this idea, it's just snake oil. They don't, doesn't really work. Right. And also, and like, so advertisements don't work on me. Right. It doesn't make it, I didn't, I didn't vote for Trump because I saw some Facebook paid, you know, Facebook ad. Right. One of the sort of key things somebody said to me very early on was that you are not the target. You are not the target. You know, if you're a sort of progressive, metropolitan, you're not a persuadable. You're not the people they're looking for. And money goes into finding this small cohort of people whose minds are not made up. Mm. and who aren't sure who they want to vote for. And so Mm -hmm. if you've got a clever way of profiling those and finding more of the same, then we know the way it works, you know, that the... There's only a few, is it 70,000 voters in three states? 77,000, yep. That was it. And so you find those voters and then you find who amongst those, those voters are most susceptible to your messaging and you, you know, you take America. And then you just hound these people with misinformation, right? Just to get them to, to vote however you want them to vote. And what was so interesting, so one of the things, for example, in Brexit, and we also saw it in this election we've just had, and I think it's really worth thinking in mind for 2020, because, you know, in America, your campaigns are just like insanely long. They go on yes. forever. The thing that um, really was astonishing to me was your visit back to your hometown in Wales and going just around the streets and saying, you know, did you vote to leave the EU or to stay? And can you can you share what you've learned about that investigation? So it wasn't my hometown. I'm from South Wales. It's from my home region. Okay. 
But it was it was just this kind of complete coincidence that I happened to be going the day after Brexit happened here in this country. You know, we were totally in shock. It was not what the polls said. Nobody thought it was going to happen. Yeah. And there was just that sort of moment. And I was supposed to be going to Wales. I'm from Wales. And I was supposed to be going to Wales to do a different story. And my editor said, can you go somewhere and do a little report on us on the reaction to Brexit? And so I was really thinking about where to go. And I was like, where should I go? Where should I go? And Ebu Vale was the place I went to. And I thought, is there such a solidly left-wing Labour stronghold, you know, the Welsh valleys, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. you know, have been for a hundred years, like the the heart, the crucible of the Labour movement. And so, and I went, and I went there for that, for that reason. And then it, it was just, but it had one of the highest leave votes in the country. And so I was oh. like, I was just, you know, what is going on here? And it was just so striking, this thing of, walking around and asking people why they voted, you know, how they voted. And it was very overwhelmingly people had voted to leave the European Union. And and when you ask them why, yeah. the absolutely number one reason was immigration. And then, you know, I suddenly became aware. I was like, are there any immigrants in Ebu Vale? Because I'm not <laughs> sure I've seen any. And what did you learn? It's one of the sort of whitest places in Britain. It has one of the lowest levels of immigration. And it was just this sort of profoundly strange thing because, you know, the anti-immigration hate in Britain has been really, really peddled by the sort of right-wing pro-Brexit conservative press yes. that isn't red right. in a place like Abu Vale. Right. You know, I was just sort of genuinely quite mystified by it. I was walking around the town and it seemed like a fairly normal town. But then I went into this lower bit of the town and I was like, what is this place? Because there was like these amazingly glass and steel buildings, like brand new and this brand new sports centre. One time the biggest steel plant in the world. And then it closed in the 80s, early 90s. Everybody'd lost their jobs, terrible depression. But it became a, it was a, um, I can't remember what they call it, a zone one sort of area for funding from the European Union. And they poured all of this money into places like this in Wales. All of this, this infrastructure, all of this, you know, modern progressive opportunities were funded by the EU. And what you learned besides immigration was the other reason why people wanted to leave the union was because they said that the EU has done nothing for us. It was just, it was just, it really was kind of crazy because it was the idea that was in people's, and that, you know, as I said, there was like, there was a new train line, there was a new train station, there was a new uh, two lane highway, there was um, a new hospital. So where did this, where did they get this from? This idea. Well, we still don't know. I mean, but it was it was literally I then was contacted by this local woman. She was saying, Oh God, your article's gone so viral on Facebook in the area. And people got, you know, people were really shocked by it. And she said, But you know, there was so much crazy stuff on Facebook before mm-hmm. the election. And I was like, Oh, what kind of crazy stuff? 
you know, she started telling me about these ads. Yeah. And of course, I'd never seen these ads because I was not the target right. of them. In my remainery metropolitan bubble, right. I was never targeted with those ads and they'd never been public. So we, the general population, hadn't seen those ads. They weren't in the newspapers. They weren't in billboards. And they were just total lies. And there's no way to go back and look at the archive of what ads were placed in Facebook. Like it, it disappears, right? Everything. So that, that's exactly what I discovered. I was like, well, we just need to go and we need to study them. And I was <laughs> like, oh, no, no, there's no database. There's no archive. Academics can't study them. Researchers can't get at them. Journalists have no idea. And then I was like, well, this is kind of crazy. So what, they're all locked inside Facebook. Mm -hmm. And we really control spending in Britain. That's the thing that we do. That's the key to our elections. And it was like, oh, okay. So we've actually got no idea. Also, the thing I realized is that there was actually all sorts of shenanigans going on with different groups buying Facebook ads and nobody knew you could buy any amount. It's the same as in America, the Russians. Just like, you know, hey, we didn't know that at the time, did we? You know, to like bring it up to date, our parliament eventually demanded that we get some of those adverts out of Facebook. You know, on whatever it was, the 10th attempt, we got some of them. We only got one of the campaigns, but we got some of them. In America, we have no idea. This is blowing my mind. So you uncover through all of this, right, that, that Cambridge Analytica, which is not unique, right? There's other versions of them. But Cambridge Analytica is funded by this U.S. billionaire who supports Trump, Robert Mercer. And Breitbart's Bannon is the vice president, whatever that means. And he also has developed this beautiful Breitbart doctrine, which literally says that if you want to change society, you have to break it first. And when you break it, you can mold the pieces into your vision of a new society. And he was going to build a new society by breaking it and building the new vision with false information that the right wing was just going to push out onto people to make them believe all the crazy shit that we know they pushed out about immigration and all these other things. Which is so corrupt, obviously. I loved your summary there. That was that was beautifully put. And Facebook's role in this is that is that Facebook is absolutely it facilitated Brexit and it facilitated the election of Trump. We know that in Brexit it facilitated the breaking of multiple laws. We know that the election was essentially illegitimate in many respects. We know that in America, Facebook facilitated the Russian government to subvert your election. You know, you can be in doubt about, they can, you can argue all you like about collusion, but it is a fact that the Russian government used Facebook to target American voters. And it is a fact that Facebook has not been held to account for that, nor even do we know anything like the full extent of it. I mean, so in America, the only thing you have got out of Facebook, okay, the only thing that, and this was your the Senate Intelligence Committee, yeah. managed to get the ads, 
placed by the IRA, the Internet Research Agency. Mm -hmm. It only managed to get the ads placed by the IRA, <laughs> which were paid for in rubles. Okay. <laughs> no, I remember that. And Mark Zuckerberg will not, will not do anything, will not help at all and takes no accountability for, for the impact that Facebook has had. I mean, the thing is, is that they, they, you know, they've been able to get away with it. So they've gotten away with it. You know, so some of the congressional committees were trying, but they're, you know, it's sort of limited. Yeah. And, you know, the, so I did this event in September with Adam Schiff and I was on this panel with him and there was this amazing moment when he, I was like, oh, he said this thing. He said, you know, if there is evidence of collusion between the Russian government and between the Trump campaign, then... The place where we would expect to see that is Facebook. Mm. Because it, if, was there an overlap between the people targeted? So if the people who were targeted by Trump's campaign and overlapped with the people targeted by the Kremlin, then that would be sort of hard forensic evidence of some information sharing of what you could call collusion. Anyway, it was amazing when he said this because I was like, that's what we've been saying, but it's like actually somebody with power saying it. <laughs> and he said, you know, and he said, we, didn't, we couldn't get that out of Facebook. But that was what we hoped would be in the Mueller report. But there was nothing about actually that in the Mueller report. So we still have no idea. And so you spent a year on this investigation before you published that huge yeah. article. Yeah, I mean, I was, well, I was already, it was almost... It was about 15 months wow. from when I started yeah, to publishing that. And then I had this like dream. I was like, I just have to get out this story. So I'm just going to like work really, really hard and get out this story. And then like I can sit back and, you know, the story doesn't get any smaller. And we still only know just such a tiny, tiny tip of the iceberg. And it's still happening all over again in real time. Yeah. And there are still so few sort of journalists and investigators looking at this. And so, yes, I do kind of, sorry, that's why I end up on like ranting to poor people like you down the end of a microphone. England has laws about um, <laughs> regulations having to do with adverts and money and elections. And, and still, you're not able to get Zuckerberg to come and testify, right? Because your government has been trying. <laughs> Well, not the government, the parliament. The parliament. One of the quotes that you said, too, to Deborah's point that I loved is when you said, you know, you left us with a crime scene and you have the evidence. And how can you yeah. share that with us? It's so basic. So Facebook, you know, is at the heart of every single election in the world now. It plays this absolutely pivotal role. All elections now are being fought online. It's being done on private property. And anything that happens inside there is private and we don't have access to it. And, you know, this, this cannot be. This, is, this, like, this has to be part of the public commons. We have to have access to this information. Facebook is just brushing under the carpet what happened in 2016. And in Britain... As I say, 
we know that they, they were crimes. We know in America those were crimes. You don't actually allow foreign demagogues yeah. to participate in your elections. Well, you know, we were talking about this too, because, you know, you have campaign finance laws, which we would enjoy. But whatever that limit is, doesn't matter anymore because they can spend 50 times that limit on Facebook and not report it. And so that law is moot. And so if someone violates that law by using Facebook, you can't do anything. And so you're like, what's the point of the law? And that I really never thought about it that way until you had articulated that, which which was so fascinating. And, you know, when we were pressing for this, we were watching your TED talk. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and I mean, first oh of all, my God. everybody who's listening, if you haven't seen it, do it now. I mean, the fact that you went to TED Talk that was sponsored by, by Google, by Google, where <laughs> the Facebook and Twitter were going to be. And you basically looked at all of these people and you said the liberal democracy is broken and Silicon Valley broke it. And you just took no prisoners. Oh my God, it was incredible. I mean, obviously you've been consistently attacked and called a conspiracy theorist, but I mean, were you terrified? I mean, what what is the courage it takes to do that TED Talk? Because that was, I mean, Deborah and I were literally holding hands watching this TED Talk. I couldn't believe it. Oh my God. Oh my God. Oh my God. I was holding my breath. I mean, mean, what happened when you walked off the stage? What were you met with? Could you see the sheer terror on my face? No, no. You're a warrior. So we just look at you and we're like, holy shit. I never did public speaking before. I was terrified of public speaking. It's not about you. Nobody gives a shit about you. And I was sort of like, you cannot be scared if you're scared Facebook wins. And then the funniest thing was when I ended my talk, you know, and I got to the end, I was like, oh, I looked down and the first person I saw in the front row was just glaring at me. And I was like, oh, shit. Okay. And I went, I went like this. And I thought, okay, I better get out. <laughs> and it was Facebook. No. Good. Oh, my gosh. That's incredible. So that must be fulfilling to some extent until you got sued, which right. was probably not which, fun, which was inevitable. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's just crazy that the being sued thing is just so crazy. I just wanted to ask what happens to truth? The truth. What happens? How do we ever know that truth exists if it's being manipulated? Absolutely. At the most fundamental level, what we are seeing is an attack on truth. That is You know, it's true in, you know, all of these countries all across the world. And that is being facilitated by the technology platforms. You know, the fact that Facebook allows politicians to lie outright in advertisements. And call it free speech, which is. That's so it's it's so offensive and horrifying and negligent. I mean, it was interesting to see that Twitter, at least, you know, Twitter made an adjustment when it came to political ads. But Facebook just said, nope, I'm not, we're not changing anything. But, you know, the fact is, is that, you know, Trump needs him. He's spending more on Facebook than any, you know, than any other campaign. I think that's still true. Mm-hmm. Although yeah. Bloomberg started spending a lot. And Cambridge Analytica closed, right? So now he's doing this through other properties. 
He's doing it through another property which is being manned by ex-Cambridge Analytica employees. I mean, so Brad Pascali is working directly with the zombie love child of Cambridge Analytica. Today. A company called Datapropria. Now. Yeah, today, right now. On the 2020 now. elections. Wow. Yeah, on the 2020 elections. You know, we're still only at the very beginning of the road of people understanding what is going on and the landscape and the mechanisms and like the use of data and the way that big tech is implicated in this. It's still, there are people out there who do understand it and are really concerned about it. Why do you think that? Why do you think that, you know, journalists from all over the world aren't stepping up and and saying, okay, we are all going to cover this and we are all going to use our power to, to bring it to the forefront and make people deal with this? Well, in fairness, actually in America, there has been and is amazing reporting going on. I mean, there's really good reporting every day. I see it, you know, in in the New York Times, in the Washington Post and NPR. They're all like investigating, looking at disinformation, looking at Facebook. This scrutiny is, you know, that the fourth estate is kind of working in that way in America. But it doesn't make, it's not really, of course, doesn't work. Right. You know, because we get back to this thing of nobody's being held to account and you can flood the market with your alternative facts. So one of the interesting things for me, we're in this battle at the moment between facts and lies. You know, it's truth and just complete bollocks. And that is where the, you know, the thing is. The whole thing for me, and this is the challenge that I've kind of have given myself going forward, is that actually there's loads of facts, but the story of what has happened and how this works, and explaining that to completely different audiences, that still hasn't really happened. It's a really complicated story. I mean, well, there, there, really are, hard there are parallel understand. realities, right? I mean, you can sit next to someone who thinks the world is a different color than you, and that's just because that's the world that's shown to them every day. On their feed. And so, I mean, obviously, the, the incredible courage it takes to uncover all of this and what you face every day just from the press and the people that you have exposed is just insane. You know, we were talking about this again. How does it get fixed? Because it's so big. I mean, these institutions, I mean, Facebook is more powerful than any country in the world. It's more powerful than the United States. It, I mean, it can do whatever it wants at this point. And Zuckerberg doesn't give a fuck, clearly. So we know that. <laughs> and so what happens I mean, you write a law and it sits on Mitch McConnell's desk. You, he doesn't pass it. You know what I mean? Do it just, we have like, what, to wait for, you know. Uh, like what happens? How do you fix this? I tell you, I tell you one thing, which I thought, really thought about. So I was at the BAFTAs on Sunday. So glamorous because it was the, the great hack, which is the documentary mm-hmm. that I was so in, good. was up for a BAFTA award. Anyhow, I was sitting there during the ceremony and I suddenly, I started getting more and more like pissed off. Because there were sort of like, you know, these amazing, beautiful, glamorous celebrities coming up and making their speeches and thanking everybody. And then I started getting really twitchy because I was like, you're like some of the most famous people in the world and you have this amazing platform. You could just, you could say something. Mm -hmm. Why is nobody making films about this? And I thought, I know that seems really basic, but actually... You know, the way we reflect ourselves as a society, the stories that move us, that engage us, you know, this is Hollywood's job. You know, that is what it can do. This is a technology of persuasion, of empathy. And I just was, I just really felt strongly. I was like, Hollywood, you are not doing your job. 
just like step up. And and that's on everybody. You know, it's on actors to greenlight those films. Mm-hmm. It's on, you know, individuals to insist that this is the film. And it's difficult because, you know, this was the thing we found with The Great Hack was considered political. It's like, yeah, well, it's, you know, it's about election corruption and it's about Trump and Brexit, but it's also true. Wow. But, you know, there's nervousness around it. There's real nervousness on on the part of the... So anyhow, for me, this is, I think that, I really think that storytelling is is a really, really important Mm -hmm. sort of like next thing Mm -hmm. that's... It's not enough for us to just like write. It's funny. I was sitting with someone from NBC the other day and I was like, can you guys just start airing the West Wing so people can remember what we wanted (laughs) the White House to look like? Just so there's contrast and decency. You know, it's it's like we've all forgotten what is normal. And, you know, when our lives felt like it functioned properly, because it's every day it feels like you wake up and it's war. And you need things to inspire yeah. you. You know, it's kind of like the only way that you can get people to be bothered to vote is if they think it's going to make a difference and if they think there's something positive to vote for. And actually, one of the key things that I think of one of the sort of key tactics against these companies is I really think that shaming people yeah. should be part of it, is that they should feel shame. You know, hundreds of thousands of people were killed in Myanmar because the UN says of Facebook. Can you explain the Myanmar incident? I mean, it ha- it's happened in like a whole handful of countries now, but we know that ethnic hatred was spread and propagated on Facebook that incited people to go out and kill and massacre the Rohingya minority in Myanmar. And... The United Nations did a report on it and they just very squarely said that Facebook was the inciting reasons behind that. And Facebook, you know, they, they've admitted a certain amount, which is they sort of said, you know, it wasn't, we acknowledged that we should have had more Burmese language moderators looking at content, taking stuff down. And, you know, I think they only had, they had something like one. I mean, you've got an entire nation and you've got, you know, a handful of people looking at the content which is going up and flagging it. This is hate speech, you know, and it's, it's being allowed now in all sorts of countries all over the world to be spread in, in this very unfettered way. And, you know, we know that's happened in Sri Lanka. We know that's happened in... Uh, Bangladesh. It's happening now. And you know what the really, the thing which is most shameful about this, and it's the example I always use, is that in Germany, this doesn't happen. And it's because in Germany, there are really, really good laws about hate speech, because that's what you do after you have the Nazis. Mm -hmm. You really, really, really think about how to prevent that happening again. So Germany has these really good laws and it really regulates what's online. And so because of that, I read this amazing statistic that one in six moderators who work on Facebook content... Around the world. Work like on, one out of every six. Around the world. Work on German wow. content. 
because they have to, because that's what the law. Wow. And Lord knows they have the money to invest, right? Some of this is just money. Some of it is just corporate greed. It's just Facebook's bottom line. And Mark Zuckerberg, there is no excuse for that. You know, why aren't they employing thousands of moderators? Why aren't they giving them good jobs with benefits and training and trauma therapy and not like outsourcing them to warehouses in the middle of who knows where on minimum wage? I mean, this is... It's, it is very, it's, you know, there's a lot of comparisons to, you know, the 19th century and the coal barons. You know, we, we used to put children down the coal mines. That used to be acceptable and they used to get away with it until we kind of rose up and said, you know what, actually, let's not send five-year-olds down coal mines. Let's not employ people on minimum wage to watch people committing suicide on Facebook live. Let's actually try and put things in to prevent that because it's inhumane, it's barbaric. But anyway, I want you to tell me now, so I need to turn the tables and tell me, how did you get into, what what was the genesis of the voting project? Feeling like, okay, we, you know, we have all these tools and all these skill sets and we have access to all these people and all these companies and how do we give back? And, you know, at least for me, I'm a very pragmatic lawyery brain person. So I started taking all these meetings and I was like, okay, well, we could do this, but it won't work unless we vote for this. And then we could do this, but it won't work until we vote this person out. And and I went down every tree of every version of how we could help. But ultimately, it really just came down to nothing really changes unless people vote for the change. And I was like, okay, well, our, what's, everyone's voting. What's the problem? And then I started Look seeing the statistics. statistics of people voting. And then you're like, but they vote for American Idol. Like, I don't even understand. It's not like voting is a foreign concept for them, right? So like how... And then you really start reading about why people aren't voting and what the barriers are, especially for this generation that, you know, we we sell things to them every day. You know, we make them excited to drive new cars and buy new products and start a new juice cleanse. And we know how to communicate to this audience, but we're doing it in ways and through channels that aren't up to date. You know, it's we're using messages that don't land with this audience. We're doing it on platforms that no one reads in this demographic. And so it really started with, okay, and I'm an immigrant. So I'm like, this is such a powerful opportunity that isn't being utilized and it can create the most profound change. How do we just get people to see that? I don't even care what they vote for, but just how can we show this to people? And so it was really, you know, who are the smartest people that can figure that out? <laughs> and then it was really assembling a room of of these twenty women who come up. And with why these ideas women? And why did you decide that that this needed to be a sort of female led movement? Personally, for me, it was all the people that I had worked with in all of my different careers happened to be women that I was incredibly impressed by. I think women are used to multitasking and organizing. Mm-hmm. And I knew that all of us are volunteers. And I was like, no one can quit their job to do this. So they can handle having a career and being on a TV show and having children and doing this, you know, 10 hours a week. Shannon Watts, who is is a good friend of ours and, and really a mentor through building this, she created Moms Demand Action in every town. And she very early said, listen, if you want anything to get done, give it to women. They are the organizers. They are the ones who do the hard work. They show up. They don't need medals, you know, and and that really was our community. It just kind of really organic. I don't know that it was as intentional as it turned out to be. I love the way that yours was so like hyper-rational. 
I love the way that you broke it down. <laughs> well, that's <Mike>. Mandana. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. So, and what's the plan? This sounds so funny, but our first day that we met, we had no agenda. But I, I remember looking at this team and saying, listen, we have a new client and it's voting and their product launches in November. We are voting's publicist. How do we get everyone to want this product? I don't want to talk about the mechanics of voting. I don't want to talk about the minutia of voting. I don't want to talk about schedules and all of the things that make everyone confused. How do we make this the coolest, sexiest thing? How do we advocate for for voting. And so, I mean, it just so happens that half of our team are huge publicists for the, you know, the biggest celebrities and movies uh, in the world and huge uh, products. And it's it's really changing the way that we think about these things. And and it's, I mean, who knows if it'll work, but it's been an incredible journey. And I think all of us have learned a ton. Uh, it's, such a, it's such a good idea. And I love the idea of maybe this is what I need to start thinking about. It's like, how do we make democracy hit? Yeah, yeah, again? yeah. <laughs> Be nice if it was like the cool thing. Well, the first thing I'd like to see is for election day to be a holiday, a national holiday. Carol, how do we get you to be our friend and hang out with us when you come to the States? Oh, I'd love to. I love what you're doing. You need all these different skills. I love the fact that you're like, oh yeah, we need the marketers and we need the like the celeb publicists and that all those different things that we've got to bring all those things to the table. So Carol, you have opened our eyes to so much and you will definitely be one of the most consequential reporters of our time and it's just we know like how much shit you take every day for this we're so grateful for the work that you do and we are oh. so honored that you gave us your time we literally still can't believe i can't believe you're it. Talking I, I, I can't us. believe it i can't believe it and um i you know just we're so grateful we really are we are grateful Oh, you do get so much shit and so many attacks and pushback and all the rest of it. But I always, you know, there's a, there's this sort of equal and opposing force that the more shit that I get, actually, the sort of more people sort of rise up to try and support yes. me and support the investigation. Yes. And it has been this amazing thing. And, you know, and I get to meet people like you doing amazing stuff. And I think... That you, you know, I do find this thing of you really have to hang on to the fact that most people are actually like really decent, good people right. trying to do good the things. right thing. It's a really small minority of just criminals and yeah. out of control corporations. Yeah. And they have all the power at the moment. But actually, if we could find a way to stand together and take collective action, it's what this is all about, finding ways to take collective action, I think. So... Um, anyhow, I love what you're doing. Get them to vote. We will do our best. And, um, and we are your champions and supporters and we'll, oh, um, that's so yes. Kind. And any, anything we can do Thank over here on this side time. of the pond. Oh, that's so kind. Thank you so much for having me on. Yes. There's no part of us that's casual about this. And we literally think this is one of the coolest things that we've ever gotten to do. So yeah. genuinely thank you for this time oh no well thank you as I say thank you for what you're doing and I can't wait to hear the other interviews that you're doing <laughs> so thank you go and kick ass thank ladies you. you too bye <laughs> okay, bye thank you so much for tuning in and please join us next week for our conversation with the incomparable the one and only Jane Fonda the climate crusader We are Deborah Messing and Mandana Dayani, and you have been listening to The Dissenters. 
Thank you all so much for tuning in. If you like today's show, please don't forget to subscribe and leave us a rating and a review. You can go to thedissenters.com to see the full list of our 20 dissenters. We love seeing the support on social, so please tag us at the dissenters, at the real Deborah Messing, at Mandana Dayani. And please continue sending us suggestions for badass dissenters we should feature. Please tune in next Thursday to meet our next brilliant dissenter. This show is produced by me, Deborah Messing, Mandana Dayani, Erica First, and Dear Media. Our music was written by Brady Cohen, and images were shot by Justin Campbell.